Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. see him and hear him in this world every day. Satan is real, working with power. He can tempt you and lead you astray. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Bevan Choate. I needed money. I didn't really care, so she proffered up this contract and I signed it. I mean, it could have been a contract with the devil. I don't know. I didn't care. I I needed money and I needed a job. That and more. But first, one of our Patreon patrons, Cindy Nielsen, sent us the sweetest message over on Patreon. She said, I've always enjoyed storytelling podcasts, but there's something, as I'm sure most of us know and feel, so uniquely special about Risk that just sets it apart from the rest. It has felt like being given permission to do the thing you realize you never actually needed permission from anyone but yourself to do. It's feeling free to discover what's just out of my awareness. Simply witnessing the courage involved in telling these stories continues to heal this fearful part inside of me. These stories have been a beacon of light for me in hard times when I needed hope, just as much as they've been a multiplier of fun and joy, helping me to live life on the entire continuum of experience. So I'm endlessly grateful for the Risk Podcast and just want to say thank you. Well, thank you, Cindy, as well as our newest Patreon members, Max Rodriguez, Lynn Weisinger, and Aida Gullen. We certainly could not do it all without our listeners' support. All right, then. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and if you were thinking, is this the Bras Gonzalves 7 behind me now? It's a very, very good guess. And we're calling this week's episode The Dark. And you know what? That's all I'm going to say about that for now. We can talk about the story you're about to hear afterwards. But first, I want to say, hey, we have Risk Live shows coming up in September in L.A. The next Risk Live show is September 19th at the Lyric Hyperion. And in New York, the next Risk Live show is September 28th at Caveat. And tickets are always at risk-show.com slash live. Also, there's still just a little bit more time to vote for the Best of Risk. The next Best of Risk episode is coming. It's so much more fun when we get lots of people voting for the stories that made the biggest impression on them for the past six months. So go over to risk-show.com slash best of risk to vote for your favorite stories. You'll have the synopses there reminding you what the stories are about. Voting ends on Wednesday, September 13th at noon Eastern time. And there's even a way to leave a voice message there. You can tell us why your favorite story is your favorite story. We might just include you on the episode. So again, that's at risk-show.com slash best of risk. So we have only got one story on today's episode. It's on the longer side. Bevan Choate is the author of the book, The Stroke Artist, and you can find it on Amazon. And after this short break, we will get to his epic story. It's a story we call, I Saw the Dark. toward a park in Albuquerque and it was one of those weird wintry days when the sky was completely gray but somehow still really bright and I was looking up into the sky watching the snowflakes seemingly materializing out of nothing falling down hit me in the face I could feel the snowflakes sticking to my eyelashes and then sticking to the hairs on my arms and that's when I looked down and noticed that I'd forgotten my jacket, but I didn't really care. I felt nothing. I was numb, like the kind of numb that severs the connection between your brain and your body. I hadn't eaten or slept in days. Reached up to brush some of the snow out of my hair and saw a bunch of strands of hair stuck to my hand. I was in really bad shape. I was so depressed. If someone had given me a thousand dollars, I wouldn't know what to do with it or even care for that matter.
It was 2021. It was a brand new year, and the world had gone completely insane. But I couldn't care less. That wasn't even my world anymore. My world had become completely internal. It was like a prison, just deranged neuroticism. Like four weeks ago, you know, I was living the dream. I was a, a handsome adjacent young surgeon who was kicking ass, saving lives, and really felt like, yeah, I've made it. I really felt like I had life by the balls. I had a fiance, great friends, a great dog. And it was like all that hard work I had put into it was finally paying off. Then the music stopped. I'd suffered a massive stroke. I woke up that morning in a total fog. It felt like I had taken a bunch of Valium or something. But I had to pee, so I got up out of the bed. And then I crashed to the floor. Like one of those oversized Jenga sets that you see at a bar or something. Just completely crashed and tumbled to the floor. I didn't know which way was up. I didn't know which way was down. The room was spinning in circles. And then I started throwing up. They rushed me to the hospital and said I'd had a massive stroke. And I basically came about as close to death as anybody would ever want to be. They did three brain surgeries on me and I could still feel the chasm in the back of my head where my skull used to be. But yeah, I recovered slowly. You know, I did all the things they said. I made progress day by day, but it was difficult. And I remember one night being in the hospital and to put it bluntly, I, I had to shit, but I couldn't do that on my own. I couldn't even walk. And so I hit the call light, no one came. And I hit it again and again. I hit the call light. I held down the record button and said, hey, help me out, help me out. I need help now. No one came. And I could feel my stomach grumbling, sharp twinges of pain. And I knew this was about to get bad. And then briefly at that moment, I had this thought that, Jesus, two weeks ago, you were doing cancer surgeries using a million dollar robot and now you are literally about to shit the bed. And I did. <laughs> and the nurses and techs finally rushed in. They said, what have you done? And I said, sorry, you know, I tried to call. They said, well, you should have called us. I said, well, I did, but uh, this is where we're at now. And so they rushed in and they picked me up, moved me around, cleaned me like I was some kind of infant or something. I didn't know how much more of this shit I could take. I mean, it was height of the COVID pandemic. I wasn't allowed any family members or friends to come into the hospital. It was horrible. I was completely alone. This word kept popping into my head. It was, it was invalid, invalid. You're, you're pretty much now an invalid. It was like I was some zoo animal they were trying to keep from going extinct or something with this staff would come in and clean me and feed me and bathe me it was totally bizarre i was always an independent person and this was just a new reality that was completely foreign to me an invalid invalid i'm invalid i'm now an invalid person 
at one point this this doctor came in and he was a nice guy he was a young guy from india he had a pretty thick accent wore way way too much cologne but he came in and he said yeah i I really think you have a high chance of recovering you know maybe in a year you'll get back to some of the things you once found joy in doing and as he was saying this i looked at his eyes and they darted up and then to the left and i thought this guy is lying to me what an ass but somehow or another i eventually hobbled out of that one month vacation to hell in an aluminum walker but i did leave the hospital walking one way or another i really wanted ice cream and a beer and so i did just that the people that came and picked me up actually took me to a place that had both but my stomach had pretty much shrunk down to the size of a racquetball so threw those up in the parking lot but it was weird it was like i had to reintroduce myself to society i was kind of a different person i was usually pretty even tempered and relatively pleasant guy in the past but it's like a switch had flipped in me i was bitter angry and resentful and i remember as we were out at one point a table of people were staring at me and i don't blame them i mean god it's like a 35 year old guy walking around in one of those silver walkers that you see at a nursing home so yeah it did look pretty fucking weird but i yelled at him i said something like be thankful for what you have (laughs) i was just a flat out ass i was angry and it started to bleed into my personal life initially a lot of friends were coming over to the house bringing food and get well soon cards and things like that but they just started dropping like flies and i know now that it was because i was such an angry and unpleasant person to be around i mean my own dog indy who's like this little blue healer australian cattle dog mix she barely recognized me i mean to be fair i was like 40 pounds lighter and had a shaved head but she looked at me like I was this like changeling or something like some kind of Manchurian candidate and for about two weeks it's like she couldn't even trust me but uh but yeah things went in that manner and it was like the angrier I got the worse things got and things finally went completely tits up I remember I I, walking out to the mailbox and uh there was this pile of medical bills in front of me and I started ripping them open like some over-anxious child on Christmas Day. And I was reading through them and really kind of lost count after about $50,000 and that's when it hit me. I was going to have to sell my home. And then it hit me again. Oh, fuck, but I don't even have a job. I don't even have my amazing career that I had spent a third of my life working so hard towards. And to top it all off, my relationship with my fiance, Eleni, was pretty much hitting the fan. Now, Eleni, it's Greek for Helen, like Helen of Troy or Helen of Sparta, depending on which way you swing. She was my fiance to be, and she was wonderful, just a completely lovely human being, beautiful. She really did live up to her name, like she did have a face that could launch a thousand ships I mean just beautiful and she even said things like you know we'll get through this we'll get through this together or whatever it takes but I just couldn't be bothered by it I didn't listen for some reason it just never registered my whole life I was used to being an island 
I wasn't used to be taken care of. I just wasn't that person. But it just became too much for her. You know, I was this bitter, self-loathing, self-pitying human being. And I remember the look on her face and the tears just pouring from her eyes. She said, Bevan, I love you, but I'm not going to let you ruin both of our lives. And that's the last thing she said before she walked out of the door. And you know what? I got exactly what I deserved. I was alone. Pretty much ate nothing for the following few days. And I just went back and forth from kind of being catatonic and having these crying spells. And every time I heaved, sobbing uncontrollably, I could feel my brain trying to push out the back of my skull. It hurt every time I even tried to cry. The days continued to pass, and I think I spent most of the time staring at either a wall or a ceiling, glancing occasionally over at missed calls from concerned family members. With I really had no intention of calling anyone back, and I just lived sort of like a caged animal, really only able to interact with the things that were right in front of me. I had no energy or motivation to do anything else. And I knew things were getting pretty bad when in the same day I ran out of bourbon, crackers, and toilet paper. And that kind of spurred me to check my bank account. And ooh, was that dismal. I had to get a fucking job. The hard part is I just had no motivation, period. So I used what little energy I had and kind of got on one of those mega headhunter websites and sent out an application. The next day, though, I did get an email and I had an interview. And I was like, yes, this is like the first little spark in my life that I've had and what felt like eternal misery. So I shaved, I showered, probably like the first time in a week. I put on a suit, I pretended like life was great, and I drove to this really shady looking building in northern Albuquerque, and it looked like it used to be a strip mall. And it had one of those green Southern Cross things in front of it, and I was like, oh, cool, a weed clinic. So, you know, I walked in with all the confidence of a business school graduate. But, you know, under the fake smile and the red tie, there was just this shell of a dead physician. This middle-aged Hispanic woman in her, I don't know, mid-60s walked up and she hit me with Spanish. She said, Hola, Dr. Chot. Me llamo Gabriela. ¿Cómo le va? Entonces me dicen que usted habla español. Pero por supuesto. And I was, this like caught me off guard. I, I was like, how did she know I spoke Spanish? What the hell? What was even weirder was that she actually knew I had had a stroke. I was thinking to myself, well, that's strange, but um, I guess word gets around. And she was like, yeah, we could use a good bilingual doc around here and your prescription writing capabilities. Shouldn't let those go to waste. <laughs> this lady was bizarre. She was wearing one of those 1980s power suits with like the high shoulder pads. She looked like if uh, Sophia Loren and Pablo Escobar had a baby, and she was wearing those tinted glasses, like very, you know, North Korean dictator chic. 
she made me uncomfortable. I don't know what else to say. She just, uh, I just wanted the interview to end. And she started talking about the clinic and her offer and all these other things, but it was just white noise to me. I needed money. I didn't really care. So she proffered up this contract and I signed it. I mean, it could have been a contract with the devil. I don't know. I didn't care. I, I needed money and I needed a job. So I became a legal weed dealer. I'm fully aware that I didn't go through four years of medical school and five years of a grueling residency to sell weed. You definitely don't need to do that to sell weed, but uh, frankly, I don't think I had the energy or the motivation to find work elsewhere. My New Mexican benefactress here, she was a busy lady. She had her hands in a lot of pies, let's say. She, she owned this slew of restaurants, motels, the weed clinic, of course. And she actually built this little three-room medical office in the back that looked like your average urgent care. It had basic medications, surgical instruments. She really fitted it out. I was impressed. I found out soon, really, that she more or less created this clinic for me to see most of her employees for, like, um on-the-job injuries and things like that. And many of her employees were immigrants who had little to no documentation and thus, you know, zero health insurance. So I was pretty much their only shot at any sort of regular medical care. And I actually loved this part of my job. This was rewarding and sewing up cuts, setting fractures, and I actually made some really good relationships with some of these folks. But I soon kind of got the impression from them that our boss more or less ran some type of a mafia. They all referred to her as La Madrona. Pretty fucking creepy, but I guess a matron she was nonetheless. So one afternoon, I'm cleaning up in the clinic. Busy day. And I was in front of a sink with one of those old medicine cabinets above it that has the mirror on the front. And I had it open. I was washing up. I threw some gauze bandages up in there and then closed the medicine cabinet. And the mirror swung around. And just like in the movies, La Madrona was standing right behind me, staring at me, studying me. And I jumped. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. She said, hey, I, you know, I wanted to pick your brain on something. So then she starts asking me lots of really, like, oddly specific questions about kidney transplants. And it was like she was asking me these questions that she already knew the answer to. Like, um, when you got in trouble at school or something, and you came home, your parents sitting around the kitchen table asking you if you drew a bunch of penises in class or something like that. It was bizarre. And I got visibly uncomfortable. It felt like my ears were under a heat lamp. I was turning beet red. Hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. And from what she told me, she said she had pretty bad type 1 diabetes. Like, I guess to the point of kidney failure. And she told me she had been on the kidney transplant list for a few years now, but hadn't found like a donor match. And so she asked, just casually, of course, Hey, have you done any kidney transplants? And I said, sure, lots of times, you know, in residency. And she said, well, what about organ recoveries? Like, have you ever recovered kidneys from a dead person is what she was asking me. And I said, well, yeah, I've, you know, done that as well. And she said, you know, I had an idea. I was thinking, um, 
I think we should enroll you with the donor services folks to start doing kidney procurements. So she really wanted me to learn how to harvest or relearn, I guess, how to harvest kidneys from dead people. And I kind of laughed all awkwardly. And I said, yeah, you can't screw up a surgery on someone who's already dead. And this is not even remotely true, but because you definitely can screw that up. But I didn't know what else to say. I was pretty taken aback. So I kind of left it at, yeah, you know, let me think it over, but uh, I think it sounds pretty good. Yeah, maybe we should do it. And uh, she left. And I was like, oh my God, thank God. Man, this lady just gave me the creeps. It was like every time she was around me, hair on the back of my neck standing up, palms getting sweaty. Part of me thought, this was such a bizarre proposition. What the hell? And the other part of me was like, well, I just kind of want to see where this goes, honestly. So yeah, I became an organ harvester. And it was really awesome initially. I mean, to feel like a real surgeon again. And I actually earned some extra cash for all those medical bills. You know, the late nights, the intensity, that visceral rush of incising flesh and the metallic smell of blood and all things that I used to highly enjoy and thought I'd never actually get to do again. And things were fast paced. I was like a drug dealer by day and a kidney anchor by night. What could be better? But one night I got called to recover some kidneys in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is about three hours south. And it was around midnight. I felt like I hadn't slept in days and probably hadn't. I felt like I was gonna fall asleep on the road. It was one of those cold, blustery, eerie nights. I was fighting to stay awake. I could see, you know, little hallucinations or shadowy figures coming out of the creosote bushes that were blowing around in the wind. And it was a real struggle, but I finally made it to Las Cruces and drove up to the hospital parking lot. And it was just a bizarre ghost town. I parked and stepped out and there was this empty wheelchair just rolling around in the breeze in the parking lot as if someone had died in it or something. It was very odd. So I walked into the back entrance of the hospital. It was very dimly lit and made it to the operating room. And I walked in. All the surgical instruments were laid out. But something seemed really off. I looked around. There was this skeleton crew of people that I'd never seen before. There was more men than I was used to. They didn't talk much. It was very different from like the crew of nurses and bean counters that I was used to seeing. But as I was trying to make sense of this whole situation, boom, and out of nowhere, OR door flung open and this dead Hispanic man in his late 50s was wheeled in and thrown onto the operating table like a piece of meat at a butcher shop. My heart started beating out of my chest, my adrenaline was soaring, and I switched into autopilot mode. Midline incision, aortic cannulation, sternal saw, vent the right atrium, white lines of tolt, dissect, snip, plop, the kidneys were out. Fuck, man, huge sigh of relief. I was glad to get the hell out of there. Something was weird. So I got back on the road and that three hour drive home that night, complete solitude, the middle of 
southern New Mexico in the desert, just outright chilling to the core. I could hear the wind just humming and blowing into my car, almost pushing me off the road. I wasn't really paying attention to anything because I felt sick. Just couldn't shake the feeling that I'd done something terribly wrong. It's like, fuck, man. Uh, Just keep your head down, I guess. So I resumed my role the following day as the happy-go-lucky weed-peddling doctor, as if nothing happened at all and nothing at all was wrong in the world. But at the end of the week, La Madrona showed up in my clinic, like, as a patient. Like, she walked through the threshold, wincing in pain. And I could see this yellowy stain on the right lower part of her shirt. And I said, hey, you all right? And she said, no, no, I had my appendix out recently. And I think the incision's infected. I wanted you to take a look at it. She lifted up her shirt and I said, yeah, it's infected, all right. But in my mind, I said, look, this is bullshit. That is not an appendix incision. That's a Gibson incision, you know, like the kind you get from a kidney transplant. And I would have bet all I had, which was not very much at the time, that there was a kidney beneath it. And then I thought, was it one of those kidneys that I yanked a week ago? I couldn't suppress it. I just blurted out, hey, where'd you get that kidney? She said, well, I guess there's no fooling you. I got lucky, I guess. And I was like, lucky, huh? Oh boy, man, this set her off. She started clenching her fists, talking through her teeth. She looked crazy-eyed. She said, Dr. Choke, you should know better than most that life's not fair. Sometimes we have to create our own luck. God, I was in shock. The room was spinning. I just felt sick to my stomach like I was going to throw up right then and there. I said, God, you're a fucking monster. What did you make me do? Harsh words from an accessory to murder. You're going to keep quiet about this. I own you. It's like, you don't own shit. And who the fuck even talks like that? But before I could even finish my sentence, she drew out a manila folder from her purse and dumped out two photos on my desk. The first one was a surveillance photograph of Eleni trying to get into her apartment late at night. What the hell? Was she actually threatening Eleni's life? The second photo was of my dog. It was Indy. But she was bloodied, beaten, dead. And she was dead. I, her eyelids were half open. I could see that there was no longer any life in her eyes. I had known Indy since she was a puppy. I had actually known her longer than I had known Eleni. She was my companion. She was like my partner in crime. Calm down, just calm down, calm down. I kept saying that over and over to myself. I mean, it was like all I could do to keep me from exploding into a violent rage and doing something completely stupid. I had to stay calm. Then she said something to me like, now where were we? And I said, oh oh yeah, I just pretended like nothing was wrong. I was just kind of like a shell of a human, like a robot. I, I started doing the task of cleaning out her incision, packing it with saline-soaked gauze, and I said, yeah, we're gonna have to change this out daily, and over time the wound will heal itself up and everything will be fine. 
and I played it cool. You know, I'd seen enough movies. I'd, I'd played it cool. But I was just boiling under the surface. And that night I got home to my apartment and just ruminated in intense anger. I calculated all the angles. I can't go to the fucking cops. I'm an accessory to murder, for Christ's sake. She's already killed my dog, and one more misstep, and Eleni's probably going to be next. Face it, you know, you're beat, checkmate. Nah, fuck that, you're not dead. Get it together, man. Do you really want to be the concierge doctor to some unhinged psychopath for the rest of your life? I took a huge, massive swig of gin from this grody old plastic bottle in my apartment, punched a hole in my cabinet, my hands were all bloodied up, my blood was boiling. I may already be dead inside, and you know, who gives a shit at this point if she's threatening me, but she's threatening people I love. She killed my best friend. Alright, bitch, you asked for it. I hatched a plan. following morning, I rifled frantically through my medication cart and transferred 20 cc's of insulin into an emptied-out lidocaine bottle. I grabbed my little fatal concoction and stowed it away neatly for later use. That week, while changing La Madrona's packing, I said, look, I get it. Fucked up. Just please do not hurt Eleni. She made some kind of little gesture like she agreed, and that was that. I uh, showed her that this week I was going to change her dressings and make it a little more tolerable by injecting lidocaine into the edges. And I, and I did, and it, it did make the dressing changes more tolerable. But that Friday, however, the injection would be totally different. I grinned like a wolf taking its first bite of flesh after not having eaten in weeks. And I emptied the insulin from the lidocaine bottle into the edges of her incision. And I watched her smiling as she got about halfway out the door. She wobbled and hit the deck, started seizing violently, and passed out onto the floor. Hey, guys, call an ambulance. Call a code. I ran over to La Madrona, and I started doing CPR, and then all of a sudden the EMS crew arrived, loaded her into a truck, and screeched away, and that was the last I saw of La Madrona. What actually happened next defied all logic and sanity. I felt like my consciousness was being sucked into a black hole and then shit out into the multiverse or something. All of a sudden I was in this dissociative fugue or some kind of psychotic break. I started flipping through lives like like television channels. Like one moment I'm in Greece, I'm on a dock, calm blue waters. Next minute I'm in the East African plains, jumping with a tribe of Maasai warriors. Now all of a sudden I'm in like this Norman Rockwell Technicolor version of World War II. All of a sudden, some general guy yells at me, Commander Choke, prepare your unit for attack. My unit happened to be a bunch of children in fatigues who were walking around with guns that were longer than their bodies. 
I guess they were uh, hurting for uh, soldiers. I did protest, but my protest fell on deaf ears. But all of a sudden I saw Eleni out of the corner of my eye. She was in these camo scrubs, delivering babies in some kind of wartime medical tent. She said, hey, come over here, I need your help. I helped her deliver a baby and then stuck with her and just continued helping her. Some of the babies that we were delivering were actually quite premature and they had come a little too early. You know, they were quite small and feeble and, and she said, here, help me with this. She, she grabbed the baby and we encased this baby in river clay and then we would stick them in these coal burning ovens so that they could grow and, and mature and they would be cured by the heat of this kiln and then we would free them from these casks with little ball-peen hammers like they were chocolate Easter babies or something. Then all of a sudden they were fully grown. We could give them their super vitamins, accelerate their growth, and send them to go fight in the war. It was absolute, pure, unadulterated chaos. The channels kept jittering and popping in my brain. It was like electric shocks on frayed wires. The last jolt sent me someplace completely new. Where the hell am I? Where the hell am I now? Is this, is this like a hospital? Mm, it's like an ICU? I couldn't move. I was trying to thrash around, but I could barely move at all. I was like a fly trapped in a spider web of IV tubing and monitors. What the hell happened? started freaking out and a nurse rushed in and she said, Bevan, it's okay, it's okay, you're in the ICU, you've had a stroke. At this point, I'm spinning out of control. I mean, to recap, I had just killed someone and now I've had a stroke. I was kind of drifting in and out of consciousness still. I think it was the sedation trying to get out of me. Awake and completely scared by the potential of a homicide detective coming in and cuffing me. And I was trying to script an alibi in my head for as long as I could stay awake. And I was thinking, did I destroy that insulin bottle? Oh shit, the cops are definitely gonna find that. I'm screwed. I passed out again. And this time I woke up in a different hospital. It was completely not an ICU. It was like a brand new hospital. My head pounded and my felt like there was something stuck in my throat, and uh, there was. It was a tracheostomy tube coming directly out of my throat, and I brushed across it with my hand, and it hurt like all hell. A nurse walked in, and she said, Hey, Bevan, there's someone here to see you. I panicked, freaked out. Who was it going to be? A homicide detective? What the hell were they going to ask me? The door slowly swung open, and it was my fiance, Eleni. What the hell? My God, it just flat out melted when I saw her. I loved her so much. I missed her. I broke down in tears. I am not the type of person that cries. <laughs> I am so glad you're alive, baby, I kept saying to her. I'm so sorry about all of this. I miss Indy. I miss her so much. Eleni said, well, she's clearly not allowed in a hospital, love. And I was like, she's alive? Yeah, love. She's at home on the couch. No fucking way. I was beyond incredulous. I made her tell me that over and over. Like, say it again, say it again. 
Yeah, she's at home, asleep on the couch. Oh man, I was so elated. I was just smiling ear to ear every time she told me that. Eleni got to stay with me a couple days on some kind of COVID hall pass type thing. And at this point, I still didn't know what was real and what was, let's say, unreal. But if she had told me that Indy was home safe, asleep on the couch, then what else might not be true? So I asked her straight up, Hey, when those babies were hatched from the clay, did they ever have burn marks on their skin? She was like, what the hell are you talking about? I'd say, uh, never mind. And so it was through this little process of, of Q&As with my soon-to-be wife that I realized that, hey, maybe I'm not a murderer after all. Like, maybe maybe none of that stuff actually happened. And, uh, you know, a lot of people now ask me after the stroke and the near-death situation, you know, had I seen the light or had I been touched by an angel and I would say no clearly I had not instead I basically went to war with my darkest fear and some kind of wicked dystopian hellscape but to be fair I, you know I'd been sucking down sedatives for the past month and then people would say stuff like oh oh so it was like just a dream like a really long dream and I would say you know it's really hard to refer to this shit as just some dream you know, I think dreams are supposed to be fun. Like, I wasn't exactly flying over tall buildings or showing up to math class in my underwear. You know, and even if it was a nightmare, if you're a lucid dreamer like me, you know, a lot of times you can hit the eject button and, and wake up out of a bad dream. There was definitely no eject button in this. It was my reality. And this whole thing moved me to such an extreme that... I wrote a book about it. I got really into painting, started seeing a therapist, like, you know, regularly. And so, yeah, I've made a lot of changes as a result. But a few weeks later, I did return to that park. I was sitting on the park bench, and this time I had brought my jacket. I was warm, and I smiled and looked at the tracks that Indy and I had made in the snow and I looked over at Indy and she actually looks kind of like a wolf but it made me think of that that old Native American parable about the two wolves that says we have a good wolf and a bad wolf living inside all of us and the one that flourishes is the one you feed but I no longer really see myself as good or bad I see myself really as a person of two minds one that is a soul and the other that is more or less a protector. Even if it did have a pretty violent dark side, I saw firsthand how terrifying this could really get, and I'm grateful for it. I know that under the right circumstances, I'm capable of murder. My dark side clearly needs no further exploration. It's time to start feeding the soul. It's time to have gratitude and care for the people I love. There's gonna be a long road ahead and I'm gonna need all the help I can get.
Risk. This is Zwan covering the song Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden behind me now. And we just heard from Bevan Choate. Weirdly enough, the lyrics to this song do work well for following Bevan's story because the whole song is also very fitting for this, our 666th episode. Not counting reruns. We've made it to episode 666, which means that our episode editor, Jeff Barr, who's been very carefully keeping track of how close we were to this episode for about 14 years now, can finally relax and get back to obsessing over vintage pinball machines. Well, I'll tell you, we are so grateful to Bevan for working with us on such an unusual story. When I first heard it, I was reminded of a fascinating true story I once read about a Catholic priest who went to a Jungian therapist because Jungians specialize in studying dreams. And from this priest's perspective, it would have been a huge sin. It would have turned his life upside down to have a romantic affair with a woman. But the priest had started having vivid dreams night after night about doing precisely that. And the therapist was fascinated to work with this client because this guy was a deep dreamer. Every night as the weeks went by, the priest would return to this ongoing story of his romance, like a serial drama first with dreams of dating this woman, then with dreams of getting engaged to her and getting ready to be married, then getting married, then creating a farm together, then having children and raising them together. A whole other life 
being lived in the underworld of his mind. Well, the priest had come to the Jungian because he was in crisis. He was thinking, does this indicate I should leave the life I've created and embark on this one from my dreams instead? And the Jungian said, no, your psyche did that for you. You can relax and be with what is rather than worry over what isn't because your subconscious has given you the gift of having that experience for your own edification. You have experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of both sides now, which is also the name of a song, but blessedly not by Iron Maiden. So again, Bevan's book, The Stroke Artist, is available on Amazon. It's a memoir that's gotten ray of reviews, and it covers a lot more of the events covered in the story you just heard called I Saw the Dark. And I have to say thanks to our editor and story coach, Taj Easton, for working so beautifully with Bevan to bring to life that story here for your ears. (laughs) Folks, I want to thank Sam Potasnik, Isabel Cohn, and Nick Civitello for joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. It's support from our listeners that helps us to keep creating such one-of-a-kind programming like today's episode. So don't be a bystander. We need all hands on deck And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show, or just email me to learn more about other options at kevin at risk dash show.com. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, on Thursday, we have the beginning of a new special series in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month. We're going to feature not one, but four compilations of some of our favorite stories shared by storytellers of Hispanic heritage, and what a collection it is. Also, each episode will be guest-hosted by hosts of other podcasts. So this Thursday, our host is the wonderful Jorge Rivera Rubio, known as El George in Puerto Rico, where he has not one, not two, but three hit podcasts of his own. But that's Thursday. And folks, today is the day. Take a risk. I'm coming back. I will return. And I'll possess your body. And I'll make
A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift It's dark.